Not many New Zealanders are aware that the greatest collection of books and manuscripts of the celebrated French novelist and playwright Alexandre Dumas found outside Paris is not actually housed in Rome, London or New York. Instead, its home is Auckland's Central Library. Dumas' most recognised works include The Three Musketeers, The Man with the Iron Mask and The Count of Monte Cristo, and these are still enjoyed by readers and moviegoers to today. Like many people, my introduction to Dumas was through the cinema. In my case, it was the 1948 Hollywood version of The Three Musketeers, starring a swashbuckling Gene Kelly as the young D'Artagnan. Now, there are currently two more Three Musketeer movies in pre-production, a Hindi dramatised version of The Count of Monte Cristo and a made-for-young adults modernised version of The Musketeers titled All for One. There is no doubt that Dumas and his work maintains an enduring fascination for the modern audience. Kia ora, I'm Honui Royal. Today I'm very lucky to be joined by Kate de Corsi. Now Kate has only recently retired as the manuscript librarian uh, at Auckland Libraries and who was heavily involved for many years with the Dumas collection. Kia ora, Kate, and welcome to Real Gold. Thanks, Honu. The first question uh, I have for you is around the enduring popularity of, of Dumas, the man. While many authors from that period have, you would could say, have faded into relative obscurity, Dumas and his work seem to continue to find contemporary audiences. What do you think is why he continues to be such a popular author? Well, his work was popular right from the start. Um, his first play was Henri III et sa cour, which is Henry III and his court, and that was a, a huge success when it was first performed in Paris. And when the novels came out, they were often published in serial form, like Charles Dickens's were in different newspapers and so on. And he was paid the slightly mixed compliment of being pirated almost immediately. So copies of his novels appeared as books in Belgium, often slightly truncated because they hadn't got to the last episode, before they actually appeared as books in Paris or before he'd finished actually writing the story. He wrote a bit sort of in an evolutionary way. But the popularity, um, in his novels there's action, there's drama, there's sword fights, horses, romance, injustice, abandonment, you know, the bad things of life as well as the good. Um, adultery, um, just chases, it's just full of action, life and drama. And often there's a background of French history from the 16th and 17th century. And I think this sort of combination of factors, the movies picked up on that when they were first invented. And so even before sound was um, attached to movies, there were six versions of Three Musketeers. So it's just been ongoingly popular. Often the translations are abridged and you miss out on an awful lot, but still very, very popular. Now let's talk about uh, Dumas the man. Now um, some people may be confused because there's two Alexander Dumas. Do um, did you want to explain the difference between there's the father and the son? Yes, that's right. Um, Alexander Dumas père, meaning father, is... The, right, the great right, the writer we know, The Three Musketeers. Um, Alexandre Dumas-Fils was his oldest child. Um, Dumas was married, but he, all his children were illegitimate. He had quite a reputation with the ladies. Um, but he did acknowledge Alexandre Dumas-Fils as his son. He paid for him to be educated. And in the end, I think, his son received more respect from the establishment than Dumas-Père did. It's quite, quite strange. Uh, Dumas Fils wrote plays and novels as well, like his father, and the most well-known was La Dame Camellia, The Lady with the Camellias, which has been turned into films, ballets, musicals, operas, sometimes called Camille. It's the same story. La Traviata is based on that story. So, yeah, he, he followed in his father's footsteps, but still isn't quite as well-known. 
But they had a, uh, and I'll carry on about the family there because it's a fascinating background, is the Dumas family. Um, his grandfather was a French nobleman. His grandmother was a Haitian slave. His father, a biracial, successful battlefield general. It is, in a way, uh, his own background seems to be sort of um, given him a lot of material to work for his own novels. Yes, that's true. Um, his, grand, his father was extremely successful. He had to take the name Dumas because Dumas' father, being the mixed-race child of a slave and an aristocrat, um, what he, didn't, he acknowledged him, he sent him to France, he educated him from Haiti, but he didn't really want to have the name attached, so he took the name Dumas. And he reached the rank of general, which was the first black or mixed-race person to do so. But he died when Dumas was four, so unfortunately, um, the Dumas had to basically make his own way in life. And he started off as a clerk to the Duc d'Orléans because he had beautiful handwriting. No typewriters, you have to do everything by hand, your writing has to be legible. And that actually really stood him in good stead because his handwriting is superbly clear compared with many, many 19th century writers who are diabolically difficult to read. Um, his, his father's life was not the easiest and Dumas wasn't either on account of the issue of his he racial heritage. Dumas Père only wrote about it in one novel, and that was one called Georges, which is quite closely based on his father's life. And if you want to read that, a new translation came out in 2007. So it's actually, I think it's probably quite a good one. The more recent translations are probably fa often fantastically clever and accurate and full uh, compared with earlier ones. What would have, um, just talking about the, you know, that idea of, he would be, well, they call them, the name I think they used was Quadroon, for somebody who had a fourth, yeah. and um, so clearly because they had these names, mulatto, quadroon, yeah. and these sorts of, which at times could be quite a negative uh, characterization, how did that affect the way he worked, that he lived within French society at the time? Were there barriers to him succeeding? Yeah. Yes, there were. I mean, he didn't write an awful lot about racism, but you often have that sense of the other or the difficulties of life, like you know, the injustice of the Count of Monte Cristo and so on. But in his, in his life, he was actually mocked um, when he was a clerk for the Duc d'Orléans. He had, was mocked because he had kinky hair. Um, his, there were cartoons of him that appeared in the newspapers. There were huge numbers of newspapers in 19th century England and France, often appearing weekly or even sometimes two or three times a week. And sometimes they would have a cartoon on the front cover, taking up most of the cover, and caricaturing someone who is famous in the day. And the ones of Dumas really emphasize his full lips, his hair, um, also his lack of financial acumen, which is another story. But he, they, they really were very, very unkind. And there was, in fact, there was one journalist who he sued, which didn't happen very often. And um, he, um, because this journalist had written an article about Dumas' collaborative method of writing, which we'll get on to, but he also said he paid his researchers very poor wages and he likened to Negro slaves, but at the same time in the article he called Dumas a mulatto. And for that, the journalist received six months in jail. But Dumas did seem to ride over the top of it. He greeted the man when he emerged from jail with no apparent rancor and so on. But it's, I think it's sort of affected his reputation over the years. 
at the time of his life, we look at other authors of the period, like Charles Dickens, for example, in, in England, who was certainly recognised as mm. a literary genius yeah. and celebrated in his lifetime. Mm. Was that the case with Dumas, uh, in, Pierre? In France. Mm. Um, it's a bit of a mixed blessing. He was always very popular. But there's that sense of popular with a slightly pejorative expression as though, you know, it's not great literature. He was exactly the same contemporary of Victor Hugo, who was born the same year, 1802. Victor Hugo um, lived another 15 years. Dumas died in 1870, Hugo went on to 1885. And Balzac was another contemporary as well, he was three years, three years older. And I think that when, when Hugo died, he'd been always up there for the spirit of France, etc. But when he died, he was buried in the Pantheon straight away. Now, the Pantheon's a big former church in Paris, which is now the National Mausoleum. So all the great writers, the great people of France, writers, scientists, and thinkers are buried there. And Hugo went there straight away. Alexander Dumas was, did not. So... I think his lifestyle, um, his collaborative writing method, and his mixed race heritage have probably contributed to downgrade his reputation, this idea of popular, uh, whereas Victor Hugo sort of slightly set himself up. But the two men were actually quite good friends. Um, Dumas visited Victor Hugo when he was in exile on Guernsey, and Victor Hugo couldn't go to his second funeral, um, but he wrote this beautiful letter to Dumas calling him France's greatest light, so, yeah. yes. Um, but yeah. there was some um, controversy over the way he lived his life yes, and the yes. perception. How was he perceived in public? You know, you talked about he had a reputation as a womaniser, um, mistresses. Yeah. Uh, he seemed to live life to the fullest. <laughs> yes. Did this perhaps have a a negative aspect in terms of how he's perceived as a public figure. Yes, I, th I think so, possibly. Mm. He was constantly making money and losing money. Um, he made enough initially to be able to build this enormous house called Chateau Monte Cristo, which is on the outskirts of Paris. It's a, if anybody wants to go there, it's a very nice place to visit. It's on a nice slope and with landscape grounds, and you can go inside and his little study, which is up the hill, because when he built the house, it was too it was too full of people. He was always very generous and open-handed, so the house was swarming with people. He couldn't concentrate to write. He needed money to keep his life going, so he built a little study up the hill called Chateau d'If, and it's got a little moat around it, mm -hmm. and the names of his plays and things, the writings to that date are around the door. It's rather lovely. So he'd had that house for two years, and then he had to sell it, because he had another financial crisis. Often when he had one of these crises, he'd either start a newspaper and write most of the articles in it to make some more money, or he'd go overseas, he'd go to um, go travelling and write a book of travel stories. So that was to recoup it. Other times he had to go because of the politics of France. Um, he did try to enter politics himself, but he wasn't successful in even getting him. But there is actually a lovely poster in Special Collections from one of his attempts to enter politics. He went to Italy at the time of Italian reunification and entered Naples with Garibaldi and became a great mate of his. And he was actually given a government post when Garibaldi became prime minister, president. Um, Dumas wrote 
that didn't actually last very long because the Italians didn't like having a Frenchman telling them what to do in terms of culture, which isn't surprising. Um, but the manuscript of, of Le Garibaldian is in the Reed Dumas collection as well. It's two huge volumes, and this is all Dumas' own writing, and it's so fluent, it's wonderful. The other thing is also during his lifetime, France was going through huge political ups and downs. So you could be on the wrong side or the right side quite easily without quite realising. He was born under Napoleon and the French Empire. Then the monarchy was restored. Then we had the Second and Third Republics. And when he died, the Franco-Prussian War was going on. So, you know, it was, it was just non-stop. His life was turbulent and his... Um, his the background to his life was turbulent as well. I think also his personality too. But you know, he wrote in every genre. He wrote children's stories, which people may not know about, often take drawing on others, uh, travel, journalism, autobiography. He wrote his own memoirs, as you do. Um, he wrote the words for a few songs and poetry, and there was a cookbook too. And it's got 20 pages on how to cook lobsters, which I think you could probably turn into crayfish. I don't know if it's been digitised. I haven't checked. <laughs> so, yeah. did, did he sell well as a dwarf during his life? brilliantly well, yes, yes. I mean, he was a hugely, um, hugely popular and successful. It's just that his uh, income was exceeded by his outgoings. And he was very, very generous to people. He just didn't manage money well, I think, really. And possibly his liaisons with endless ladies were problematic for some people, especially as France possibly became a bit more conservative. Victor Hugo had numerous mistresses as well, but somehow managed to manage his reputation, I think. Mm-hmm. You, you touched on earlier the, um, the issue of collaboration. Yes. And yeah. um, he's been accused of not giving enough credit to those that have assisted him in writing. Yeah. What do we know about that and his collaborations? He collaborated with a lot of people. The one that we know most about is Auguste Mackay. And I think it was Frank Reed who made the comment that Mackay provided him with the, the baseline, the story or whatever, and the research. But Dumas would energise it. He would give it life. He would add the action and the drama and all that sort of thing that made it actually readable as opposed to a dull history. So um, there are many others, I don't know their names, but Reed wrote quite a lot about the collaborators, and there's a typescript of Frank Reed's in the collection. And we actually, there was actually a researcher who came into Special Collections some years ago who was doing a PhD on the collaborators. Um, unfortunately, family circumstances meant he had to go back to England and he never saw the results, which was disappointing. But he... Um, I think this whole collaboration, the obvious collaboration, possibly also did him a discredit in the days when you had one person who was supposed to write something. Collaboration or ghostwriting or co-authorship is just not um, not acceptable to many people. The writer has to sit there and be inspired and write it all by himself. Mackay actually took him to court one time for not being acknowledged, and Dumas paid a huge sum and still didn't put his name on the title pages. I think it appears in one or two things that probably have a lot more of Mackay than the other. So, yeah. Yes. Now, um, he didn't, as you as you spoke about before, so when he died, he wasn't put in the pantheon. He wasn't mm. regarded as the highest artistic right. level. Yeah. But this changed, didn't it? Can it you did. tell us a bit about what happened? And you yourself personally um, became involved yes, in some of the yes. events. Yes, um, When he died, it was actually during the Franco-Prussian War, so he was buried 
in the village where he was staying near Dieppe, near where his son was living. He'd become, I think, quite unwell and possibly a bit unstable. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but he, he had to be buried in this, t at this village near Dieppe in 1870. They, you couldn't get into Paris. The Prussians were all over the place. So two years later, um, he was, his remains were lifted and taken to Villers-Cotterêts, which is the town where he was born. And that's where he stayed for, from 1872. Then um, there was a society formed in France in 1870 to try and elevate his reputation, to look at him again more seriously, rather than just through abridged classic comics and that sort of thing. And they did a lot more research into his life and into his writings. They managed to buy Chateau Monte Cristo, which was up for sale and somewhat derelict, and the area could have been subdivided. So they did a huge amount of work. And by 2002, which was the Dumas bicentenary, um, they just, the French government had agreed that he could be moved to the Pantheon. He, um, they put all the great pomp and circumstance that the French government can do and organisational capability into this move. And I was invited along with a number of other people from abroad. I was the representative of the furthest flung Dumas collection. The French often refer to New Zealand as les antipodes, the antipodes, and it gives you that real sense of, you often have conversations with French people of, you know, if I drill through the earth from here, I get to New Zealand, and you've got this huge sense of distance, despite you know, aeroplanes and all those things, and the internet now. So... There was someone from Haiti there, which was nice. He was a doctor who had his own Dumas collection. A guy from Finland, um, two, two Russians who didn't speak a lot of English. It was a very mixed group anyway. So the, the French governments, um, they gave got huge coverage in the media as well. Radio, TV, uh, all the newspapers, no matter left, whether they were left-wing or right-wing, publicised this enormously. Half page paragraph, you know, half pages, leaders and everything. So Dumas was exhumed from Villers Cotterets. There were farewells and ceremonies and oratory there. Then he had a night at Chateau Monte Cristo with a dinner, a bit like a wake. I don't know if it was around his remains or not, I wasn't there at that point. Um, that was on TV. The next morning, a crowd of people gathered, and that included me and the international group. And he was farewelled by local school children and all these people and four musketeers dressed in blue velvet, which was couturier designed, needless to say, and went off to Paris. And in Paris, he spent the day in the Senate House where there were more speeches. And these had included an apology to his father as well, which so to his, the, the first one, the, the one who was the son of the um, Haitian slave. And then in the late afternoon, this was December, so evening came in quite early, um, the, the cortege moved towards the Pantheon, and it was preceded by a whole lot of flatbed trailers with student, drama students on them performing act scenes from his plays, which they did with enormous energy and enthusiasm, and they lend themselves to it anyway. There's murders and suicides and guillotinings all in the back of the flatbed trailers, and the audience were encouraged to come. Anyone who wanted to could come and stand behind the railings and clutch your favourite copy of a Dumas writing like a novel or something like that and people were interviewed etc and then as the cortege arrived um, a Marianne on a white horse appeared 
And Marianne is a spirit of France, the woman who appears on a lot of the French coins, and she wears a Phrygian cap, like a knitted stocking cap, in red, red, white, and black. The horse didn't actually behave very well. It was a bit spooked, but anyway, she led the cortege into the Place du Pantheon. A lot more speeches, a lot more oratory, and the final speech was President Chirac, who sort of made an apology to Dumas and um, praised his reputation and his writings and so on. And then the very last item was a woman who read the letter that Victor Hugo had written to Dumas Fils when Dumas was interred in 1872. Victor Hugo couldn't go to that burial, but he wrote this wonderful um, letter. And this is where he said um, that he was France's um, very own light sort of thing. So it was a magnificent occasion. I actually at the time wondered if the New Zealand government would ever do something similar. I couldn't quite see it. But um, it, was, it was actually quite magnificent and great to be there. And after that, everybody just faded away. It's a wonderful yeah. quote. Now, I've got it in front of me here where Hugo writes, Alexander Dumas seduces, fascinates, interests, amuses, teaches. From all his work in such multiplicity, so varied, so vivid, so charming, so powerful, springs a kind of light which is France's very own. That's right. When yes. you experience that and being there amongst, the, obviously, the, the literary elite of France, mm. was there a sense of redemption of this, this man? I think there really was, actually. I mean, having worked with the collection a lot myself, I hadn't realised, I don't think, the racist, the depth of the racism that he encountered. I'd seen the, the cartoons and the caricatures, but I hadn't... Um, Reed didn't really concentrate on that sort of thing. His was a bibliographic approach, you know. When did he write things? You know, he turned out there were three versions of The Three Musketeers when that was first written. There was a serial and a novel, and I can't remember what the other one was. So it's that sort of thing that had been concentrated on. So I hadn't realised, and it was actually really good, and the newspapers really, really emphasised it as well. So, and I noticed recently the British Library has got a series on, um, on their website of essays about mixed race people, um, writers, musicians, and so on. And Dumas, Dumas is one of them, which is really nice. It's a nice compliment. Well, you mentioned Frank Greed, and in our next episode, we're going to discuss Frank Greed. And for listeners who don't know who Frank Reed was, he was part of the well-known Reed family. A.H. Reed, the publisher, was his brother. They lived in Whangarei, and he was the man single-handedly responsible for this extraordinary collection of Dumas in the Auckland Public Library. So for this episode, I'd like to thank you, Kate. Thank uh, you. Thanks very much yeah. for um, being part of here today. Kia ora tato. It's a pleasure. Thank you.